Welcome to Guilty as Charged, the law behind the crimes. Exploring law and public policy relevant to criminal law here in Arizona, where nothing is out of bounds and all perspectives are considered. Welcome to Guilty as Charged. We're excited to be hosting another episode of our new podcast focused on Arizona criminal law, where we talk about issues uh, big and small that are affecting the criminal justice system here in Arizona. Today, we're going to be talking about victims' rights and how important those are in Arizona. Anybody involved in the Arizona criminal justice system understands that victims' rights is a big part of what we do. As always, if you have a legal or policy issue related to criminal law that you think is interesting, there are probably others out there dealing with it or that are also interested in it. So feel free to reach out to me on Twitter, on Facebook, or shoot me an email or a text, and let's do a, an episode about that. We can do another podcast about that. Today, we have... Randall Udelman and Dan Levi with us. We're going to be talking, like I said, about victims' rights, but first let's get a short introduction on each of them. Do you each want to take a minute to introduce yourselves? Hi, my name's Dan Levy, and I'm a victim advocate, executive director of the Arizona Crime Victims' Rights Law Group. We're a nonprofit here in Arizona, serving victims of crime in the criminal system, providing legal, legacy, legislative support where need be for victims of crime. I've been involved in victims' rights for 25 years. I got involved after my brother Howard was murdered in a random act of violence here in Phoenix in 1996 and have dedicated my life's work in his memory and all crime victims to ensure that they're treated with fairness, respect, and dignity. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for being with us today. And then Randall? I'm uh Appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today also. And I'm a lawyer, a victim rights lawyer. I've been in private practice in a, I've had a civil practice for 30 years and a practicing victim rights lawyer for about 12 years. I got involved in the victim rights community because Dan Levy gave me a call when he was working with the governor's office about uh, 12 years ago, asking me for assistance on a particular case. And I haven't looked back since. So it's um, certainly something that appreciate an opportunity to talk to you today. Yeah. Well, thank you both for being here. And I do have to add, we don't have enough time to go over all the different ways that they've been involved in victims' rights, but both of these men have been involved both at the local, the state, the federal level, with the courts, with the legislature. I literally, I, I can't almost, almost can't count how many different organizations that I have listed on their bios here, but we are grateful for them being with us today to discuss this important issue of victims' rights. And so can you just maybe take one or two minutes and talk about, either one of you, about the organization that, that you have, that you're running and how that got started? Sure, Randy. <laughs> I, Dan, I'll, I'll defer to you. Okay. Well, we're a Arizona 501c3 nonprofit. We've been in business for seven, eight years uh, now f full-time, and we provide free legal and victim advocacy and support and resources to those who are victims of crime in the criminal justice system, and we don't charge. And that's important to know because as a nonprofit, we don't set any you know sort of determination of who we're going to serve. Uh, we're going to serve anybody who's a crime victim a crime in Arizona if we can. The services that we provide are both legal and social services. We provide legal services from the, the point a charging decision is made by a uh, prosecuting agency, and we provide continuous legal services until final restitution for economic losses are paid. And often that means we represent 
family or an individual victim of crime for many, many years uh, because the process is uh, very long. It's important to have legal support for a victim of crime, but it's also equally as important to have social support for that process because victims don't ask to be thrust into the criminal justice system and don't know what to expect. So we have a very small organization. We try to provide as as effective a service as we can. Unfortunately, we're understaffed, so we have a pretty long waiting list of people that, that have a need for services that we just can't get to immediately, but we, we certainly try to do our best and, and provide services as uh, quickly as we can when the timely needs arise. And Jake, I'll just add real quick that we're, I mean, honored and fortunate and you know, that Randy is, uh, he helped co-found this organization and it's been a leader in victims' rights. And as you know, it's hard to find a, an attorney uh, that's as focused and committed on victims' rights as Randy. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely, it's, it does seem like it's often, it's hard to find people that are experienced in it, that are willing to dedicate themselves to it. So often, I think people within the criminal justice system tend towards either prosecutors or defense attorneys. And so it is kind of unique, frankly, to see somebody that is coming at it simply from a victim perspective. And so that, that is a little bit different than what we often yes. see in the criminal justice system. Well, let's, if we can, you know, speaking of that, even the idea of victims' rights is kind of a, a new trend. And most of our careers, it's been around, so it's not new as in the last couple of years. But historically, in the history of the United States, it's kind of a newer trend. So I thought that maybe you guys could just start us off understanding that, of course, we're talking to people involved in the criminal justice system already, but maybe a brief history, victims' rights, and how it got started both across the country or here in Arizona. Yeah, I'll jump in and just say, you know, I mean, relatively, as you mentioned, Jake, the victims' rights movement's fairly young. I mean, it was the late 70s that groups like MAD and early rape crisis shelters and nonprofits began. And so much like other movements, the civil rights, the women's rights, other movements, it's taken a while to change the pendulum. And of course, when our first country was set up, you know, individuals could charge victims on their own. It wasn't the state versus the victim and people were wrongly, you know, strung up in town squares or whatnot. But as we developed and rightly so, we put in protections for the defendants, the Bill of Rights, but victims of crime went from being, you know, party who, you know, literally had standing to, you know, being an outsider, if you will. And as our country developed over the last 30, 40 years, every state has victims' rights. I think 33, 34 or so have them in our state and constitution. And, you know, victims of crime or survivors aren't looking for a veto. They're just looking for a voice. And Lady Justice has a blindfold and a scale of justice. And I think we're just looking for fairness. And so I think the victims' rights movement has come a long way. Arizona in 1990s incorporated the Arizona Victims Bill of Rights. And then the following year, the statutes that implemented those rights. And we've been a leader in the nation ever since and basically give the victims the right to be informed, involved, and included in the criminal justice system. And we're still evolving. We're still fighting to get basic fundamental rights. And here in the United States, you could be a victim in one state and be excluded from being in the courtroom. And then in another state, like in Arizona, have the right to be in there, even if you're going to be a witness. So we're looking for even a national victim's rights at some point, a constitutional amendment. But federally, there are 
victims' rights in the federal system, right? You're just this is not constitutional. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, let me if I if I may just add a couple of additional comments. Yeah, the, the federal government has uh, two standard sets of statutorily enacted rights: the Crime Victim Rights Act, the CVRA for short, and then the Mandatory Victim Restitution Act, the MVRA. And those particular acts certainly provide federally, I can't say guaranteed the way that Arizona guarantees them, but a, a set of federal rights to victims of crime in the federal system. Back in, I think it was 1982, there was a presidential task force on victims of crime that led to, I, I believe, Arizona's Victim Bill of Rights, Article 2, Section 2.1a, was passed by voters in Arizona in 1991 that provides a series of enumerated state-based constitutional protections. Those rights start off by basically saying the right to victim to preserve and protect their rights to justice and due process. And then it goes further and spells out some of those is approximately 11 or so of uh, various enumerated rights, the rights to uh, fairness, to be treated with fairness, dignity, and respect throughout the judicial system, uh, the right to be informed upon request uh, when the accused is released from custody or escape, the right to be present when the accused or convicted person is present at a particular criminal proceeding, whether it's a uh, an initial appearance, case management conference, a status conference, a bond reduction hearing. Whenever the defendant has the right to be present, then the victim has that same right. The right to be heard in any proceeding where the uh, defendant is negotiating a potential plea or alternative dispute disposition. The right to confer with prosecution over what plea offers to present. The right to review pre-sentence reports before sentencing the right to give statements at sentencing on the particular punishment to to see as a result of the crime, the right to prompt payment of restitution, and, and the right to be informed of all these uh, constitutionally protected state-based rights. Those are all the types of rights that, over the past 30 years, have required victim attorneys and victim counsel to, to litigate, because typically a victim, they're not represented by the state, they're not a party to the litigation, but they have standing to assert rights. And what the extent and scope of those rights are has required litigation over the past 30 years, and it's still a fairly new area. It was still ripe for additional litigation, and, and our organization is pleased to be a party when it comes to presenting cases before the Arizona Court of Appeals, the Arizona Supreme Court, or uh, even in U.S. district courts. Uh, trying to uh, define the extent of what victim rights need protection in order to preserve those rights, as I believe voters anticipated back in 1991. And what Jake may recall or know of the case where caps were put on for restitution in the city of Phoenix, Randy, that case where was it the Supreme Court ruled that they can't put a cap on restitution for vehicular accidents and had I think I'm yeah. right here, Randy. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's a, a yeah, yeah. prime Maybe example of a case that we litigated, uh, State versus Patel. Right. And in that particular case, um, the legislature had originally said in uh, the statute 28672G 
that when it comes to a, ve a vehicular crime, there is a restitution cap. They started off initially at 10000 then they raised the cap to 100000 right. And ultimately, the city of Phoenix and us as amicus argued that such a cap was unconstitutional. Our rationale was, you know, if the choice of weapon is a vehicle as opposed to a gun, uh, why should there be a cap? Why treat a victim differently just because the defendant chose to uh, commit a crime by using a vehicle? The loss is the loss. If an economic loss occurs because someone was shot as opposed to someone using a vehicle in the course of committing the crime, whatever the amount of economic loss is shouldn't make a difference and shouldn't be limited. I was just thinking Jake may have heard of that case since it's sometimes dealt with in city courts. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely one that we deal with at the municipal level and, of course, in the justice courts and, and other places too. And it is an interesting, it's one of the more interesting cases, in my opinion, that, that shows that statutes have to cede to those constitutional guarantees, the Victim Rights uh, Bill of Rights that you guys are talking about that was that was passed in the in the early 90s. How, how far do you guys think that goes? I, I've wondered, you know, it was kind of a high-profile situation with the county, Maricopa County Attorney's Office recently where they hadn't charged some victims' cases, including some domestic violence cases, and they couldn't go forward because of the statute of limitations. Do you ever foresee a situation where the Victim's Bill of Rights makes it so that statute of limitations is unconstitutional? Um, I'll, I'll defer to Randy. <laughs> well, Fair. from a pure policy perspective, I can see yeah. that as a potential issue subject to litigation down the road. I guess the answer to that question is it depends. Why was there a uh, decision to to, to uh, delay prosecution? What, what we typically see is, and I think there is case law, it's more Hart versus Barton that talks about a balance that needs to be struck when there's an issue affecting a criminal defendant's federally protected constitutional rights mm -hmm. versus a uh, crime victim's state-based constitutionally protected rights, the federal rights are superior to those of the state rights. So the state right would have to defer to the analysis under the federal constitutional evaluation. I don't know if I could legitimately say in all cases that prosecution decisions that are made that that somehow miss a statute of limitations would implicate a, a federal defendant's constitutionally protected right. If it implicates a victim's constitutional right, maybe it's worth looking at in more detail. I just don't know. It's a hypothetical that's a difficult one to analyze. Which is why, you know, many of us feel, you know, we need a federal U.S. constitutional amendment so that state victims' rights don't always yield to the federal rights of the defendants, such as a victim's right to a speedy trial here in Arizona. Most judges in my 20-something years are going to defer to a constitutional right of defendant, you know, and deny a victim's speedy trial rights at the state court level if a defendant wants to waive their rights and continue going. Mm-hmm. You know, there's lots of those different situations where it does seem like the courts are trying to balance. And like you have both mentioned, it is a newer area where there's still a lot of development in the law. I think even, what was it, this year or a couple years ago where 
I don't remember where, but wasn't there a court that didn't allow a victim's attorney to enter into the <laughs> yeah. well courtroom? Yeah, E.H. versus Slayton. Slayton on Blackstaff or Coconino. Yeah, that's a, that's a uh, Arizona Supreme Court case that actually has been back up and down before the Supreme Court on more than one occasion. But the Arizona Supreme Court held that victim attorneys have the right to be present in the well of the courtroom, among other issues in that case. In fact, I believe we were uh, we provided some amicus support on that case also. And in fact, Randy's had his own personal experience, and I'll defer to you if you want, Randy, but uh, you know, where a defense attorney said, well, he can't be in the well of the courtroom. Yeah, the, uh, the uh, trial judge at that point said, well, where would you like him to sit? On the floor? <laughs> <laughs> we like that. It was like... Yeah, no, it, it is good to see more and more recognition for those rights. What kind of issues are you guys seeing today? Are you, are you seeing litigation around discovery issues or is it that access issues like the being in the well or, or what, what kind of issues are we seeing currently percolate up through the court? Oh, it's a great question. I appreciate you giving us a chance to talk about it. I'm going to spend some time talking about one issue that I think is an issue that a lot of people see a need for victim counsel uh, support especially prosecutors, by the way. And that's the need for restitution, developing, establishing economic loss claims, and then collecting restitution for economic loss. Oftentimes, we have been seeing those issues as uh, ripe for litigation, both at the trial court level, as well as up at the Court of Appeals and, and before the Arizona Supreme Court. And uh, along those lines, I know one of the issues we've been working on is to get the state to be able to, like anything, uh, develop data points and tracking restitution, the amount ordered, the collection, and some sort of uh, radar so we know sort of a report card of how we're doing in uh, collecting and getting it ordered because it uh, restitution is such a huge issue. And as we talk about criminal justice reform, all for that, but when you forget about the victims and the amount of restitution that's owed and left unpaid once they're off for probation or out of prison and there's nobody paying attention, but the courts still retain jurisdiction, it's up to the victim or organizations like us to find the defendant, have them served and brought back in front of the court. Because as we know, 95% or however many make plea deals and they promise to pay that money, but suddenly forgotten about. And I know if I forget to pay my visa bill after 30 days, I get an email or a text and uh, restitution is forgotten about. And that's a huge issue for us. Yeah. It seems like that, that's been another issue that we've seen some in the courts recently and, and at times whether victims, attorneys, are eligible for restitution. I don't. I don't know if if as state versus Reed, <laughs> yeah, state versus Reed. And I, I guess I was gonna. I don't know if as a nonprofit. I assume you guys request victims' attorneys' fees at times, but maybe not. But can you talk a little bit about state versus Reed and and how that has changed things? Sure. Uh, state versus Reed was a case involving victim who had private counsel in a court down below faced a request for an attorney fee award involving private counsel. And under the circumstances, the Supreme Court did uphold the fact that private counsel and fees can be considered as economic loss in support of a claim for restitution. Uh, but the three elements that need to be tested or that need to be met have gotten, they have to be proven up. And down below, the, the trial court did not 
identify those factors with a particularity that was required by the Supreme Court. But the, the most important holding that came out of the Reed decision, in my opinion, is the simple fact that private attorney's fees are awardable as restitution. They just have to meet the test for economic loss that I think is spelled out in the case State versus Madrid. The loss has to be, number one, economic, which is very clear. Number two, the law, the, the losses would not have been incurred but for the criminal act. And number three, the expenses would not have been incurred except for the fact that they were directly related to the criminal activities. The direct relation connection is the area where we paid careful attention after State versus Reed to that requirement. And typically, we tell other lawyers if they are representing victims, you need to make sure that your time is directly connected to advancing a victim right and identifying what that right is in your timesheets, what particular constitutional protections you're addressing is an absolute essential way to make sure that the uh, fee request is considered and, and approved. As a nonprofit organization, we certainly reserve the right to request fees. We, we typically don't, but we certainly reserve that right if and when the, the need arises. And we believe it can be done in a manner that doesn't jeopardize or harm our clients' ability to recover for their separate economic losses. But certainly, the state versus read analysis made by the Supreme Court kind of helps spell out that attorney's fees are recoverable as economic losses in much the same way as any other losses, as long as they meet the uh, the three-part test that is required under Arizona law to prove up those losses. I'm going to address something as a follow-up to what Dan talked about also. We take a keen interest in restitution for economic loss for a simple reason that I think nobody else does. And I don't mean to say that somehow with a, an ego when I say that. It's the U.S. Supreme Court in a case, United States versus Lagos, yep. uh, a long time ago. That court said, you know, 90%, and I'm paraphrasing, but the court said, you know, 90% or, or, or so of restitution's not recoverable, so why try? And my response to that, and I think our response as an organization to that is, it, it's precisely because 90% of restitution is supposedly unrecoverable that we should try. And so we push the envelope when it comes to restitution and restitution collection efforts. We think creatively, we think outside the box. We think about intercepting stimulus money, for example, when the need arises. We think about pushing the envelope when, when it comes to collecting, intercepting wages and doing writs of garnishment. Or we think about pushing the envelope when it comes to appointing a receiver to sell property and distribute excess proceeds after payment of purchase money mortgage to the victims if there's excess proceeds. We push the envelope because the victims have a need and they have the right in connection with the obligation to treat them fairly and with dignity and with respect. They also have the constitutional right to prompt payment of restitution for their economic loss. And so that's precisely why we take a keen interest in pursuing recovery. 
And Jake, it's about accountability and responsibility and just making sure that, you know, no one wants anybody to go to jail for not paying the restitution, but there are restitution courts. And when a court brings a defendant and Randy's done this, or we do, you know, what's basically, you know, go through all the assets of the defendant or their liabilities. And, you know, you find people do have an ability to pay and it's just somebody paying attention and responsibility and You know, that's one of our frustrations that we see is just not enough tension being placed on restitution. Yeah. And I I love, frankly, some of the case law in Arizona that that says that it's bold to make the victim whole and because it's almost a duty of a defendant, you know, not not an extra punishment. It's he should have to or she should have to make that payment if they're causing that loss. And I think I mean, in the in the restitution court where a judge on their own order can bring the defendant back. Uh, if they're on probation, they do basically, like Randy does, a debtor's exam. And it's like, well, you have cable TV, you have a Gucci purse, you're doing this, you're doing that. Everything else is getting paid but restitution. And, you know, suddenly if people are put in jail for the purged amount, which we've had happen, they miraculously come up with the money by the end of the day or the end of the weekend. And it's just frustrating. Yeah. It's kind of miraculous how when somebody's in custody, they can some, suddenly come up with the money. Yeah. Well, so many other issues are exactly what is restitution and how do you calculate what that amount is? And that's another area uh, that we look at very carefully and very closely, particularly if it looks like a defendant would have capacity to pay those uh, economic losses. For example, a victim is seriously injured and requires future medical care. Restitution for future estimated medical costs should be considered as restitution. If a victim has uh, lost earning capacity because they can't do the same job as they originally had, that should be subject to restitution for economic loss. Uh, Those types of, the the burden of proof is also by a preponderance and not by beyond a reasonable doubt. But typically those burdens are met with expert testimony that we would have present. And whether it's using an economist or using a vocational care expert, those types of claims need to be developed. And those types of claims require often that we present this type of evidence in contested restitution hearings. And I mean, fortunately, victim counsel is allowed to do that. Uh, mm-hmm. There is a change in the statutes, uh, 1344-37, and I believe it's subsection E that allows a victim attorney to present evidence, information, and opinions concerning the need for restitution. And we typically do that. And we typically would offer to take the lead in presenting contested evidence in support of claims for restitution. Off, you know, we, we use experts all the time, we, whether it's, like I said, the uh, economist, whether it's the uh, vocational rehabilitation specialist, forensic accounting, the need is uh, involving a white collar theft of a business, uh, you name it, we we typically would use expert support when it comes to developing claims, and we're not afraid to push the envelope on developing those claims, not just collecting restitution, but developing what they should be. Even as far as, uh, you know, asking for, you know, cash bail uh, for a restitution lien or to be held in abeyance of the outcome of the case, or we've tried, I'm sure we'll keep trying to get that. Yeah, and, and Dan's right. It, Jake, the um, definition of economic loss is any loss incurred by a person as a result of commission of an offense. So we take that 
very seriously and, and develop claims for restitution. And um, if a judge requires it, an additional step is asking the judge to release or before exonerating a bond, release it directly to the victim in partial satisfaction of the restitution award that uh, would help make a victim some partially whole under the circumstances. If and when the need arises, we're certainly willing to make those types of requests after establishing what the total amount of restitution should be. So if I can go back just a second, I have a question, one for each of you, if that's all right. One, Dan, you had talked about trying to get the legislature to, or somebody at the state level to track restitution. Is there any, do we have any estimates at all of what percent of restitution that gets ordered uh, gets actually paid beyond the, sound like that Supreme Court more dicta mentioning maybe 90% doesn't, but do we have any evidence or, or any statistics? Not in my, I've been working with the Arizona Criminal Justice Commission, which last year the legislation passed in sort of a more generic term where they can begin asking uh, criminal justice agencies for data. And so my hope is one of the data points will be, you know, like I said, how much is ordered, how much is collected. We have 15 separate counties. We have all these municipalities, but every piece of restitution has to go through a clerk's office. So, you know, there needs to be some mechanism so that we can have a benchmark. Some of the pushback has been, well, it's not really accurate because you could have 10 million ordered one year and not the year before. But, you know, we're looking for, uh, we're not looking for gotcha moments probation or anybody else we're looking for, we're all in it together. Uh, let's see how we can make a more effective way to make sure we're collecting restitution and holding people accountable and responsible for what they promised to pay. And victims are left holding that bag. And we have a waiting list of over a year. We have to triage cases, trial cases take preference. But, you know, if people who say this person's out of prison, 10 years ago, they owe me 100000 or whatever, or off of probation, and there's nobody there to help. And so that's, I think it is so important to know and track uh, where we're going with restitution, especially as we're considering letting offenders out early for nonviolent crimes, which unfortunately include what I call the violent crime of white collar crime of people losing their life savings, being frauded out of thousands or tens of thousands of dollars and the devastation that that does to people and to, to know someone could get out early, but not have any obligation to pay it is frustrating. And that actually brings up the question that I was going to ask you, Randy, if that's all right. And maybe it's too early to ask this question, but I know we just had an election here in Arizona where one of the propositions that looks like it's almost certainly going to pass relates to debtors' rights. Is this going to have any effect on restitution as far as we know at this point, or is it still too early? It's still too early, and I, I was concerned about that going in. I don't want to say that that will occur. I was concerned that that might be an unintended consequence of what may very well have been a valid issue, but there might be some needs to litigate that question, and I am I think it's too early to tell right now. Okay. Yeah, and just kind of came to my mind as I was listening to you both speak a little bit on on some of the issues about recovery. That yeah, it's a good point. That a lot of people in the criminal justice community are talking about relating to victim contact, specifically by defense attorney and the defense attorney team. Now, just to be clear, and I, I think everyone's aware of this, it doesn't have anything to do with victim contact by the defendant themselves. 
Again, this was in in the U.S. District Court, and it's the Arizona Attorneys for Criminal Justice versus Doug Ducey and an, another several other named defendants, including Mark Burnovich and and some individuals at the state bar. But what, what was this case about? If I may, I think the issue that the Arizona Association, Arizona Attorneys for Criminal Justice, presented was their concerns about having to go through the prosecuting agency whenever they want to make a request to interview a victim in connection with a pending criminal case. The judge held his findings of fact and conclusions of law recently, I think back in the November 2nd, so just a few weeks ago, the judge held that requiring defense attorney or requiring a defense attorney investigator to go through the prosecuting agency violates the First Amendment because it's a prohibition on speech. I think, realistically, that's the the takeaway from the findings of fact and conclusions of law, and I'm glad to see that uh, the Attorney General's office uh, is taking this issue up to the Ninth Circuit because I truly don't understand how the findings of fact and conclusions of law led the judge to reach such a conclusion. The judge talked about, and I believe confirmed, that victims have a right to refuse any interview from a defense attorney or a defense attorney investigator. And and I'm afraid that the exercise of that right now will be somewhat illusory because the victim won't necessarily know that they have such a right still. The way the system was originally set up from Victim Rights Implementation Act, 134433 subsection B required any defense counsel or defense investigator just simply to make a request through the prosecutor's office who in turn will forward such a request to a victim. I don't believe the victim has been informed or will continue to be informed enough that they have the right to say no to a request for an interview. And I'm afraid that we're going back to the days predated 1991, where victims would be treated in a way that's not dignified and not respectful. And there's such a danger, in my humble opinion, for abuse of this right to bypass the prosecutor's office and go directly to a victim. And the problem and the concern I have is victims already never asked to be thrust into the criminal justice system, whether it's a minor victim of a sexual abuse charge or somebody that could potentially have post-traumatic stress disorder based on a, a violent crime. How are they supposed to know that they have the right to refuse an interview when a defense attorney is going to call them out of the blue or a defense investigator? The mechanism was set up in a way that I think legitimately gave a victim that type of information. And I'm afraid that by taking that safety feature away now, victims will no longer understand enough detail so that they can exercise that right. And that's a concern I have. 
I was just going to add in that, you know, I read the 50 page opinion, uh, whatever, but I, I don't think the court considered or didn't hear for whatever reason, and hopefully they will on appeal, the compelling testimony of victims, uh, certainly people I know that before victims' rights in 1990 or 91 were implemented, tell of compelling stories. And even after that, I'm familiar with investigators showing up saying at a victim's doorstep the day before in a clemency hearing and saying, I'm an investigator from the state, unbeknownst. And I just think, what's the difference between contacting somebody and an interview? So I'm here to talk to you and I'm going to ask questions, but then I'll go back later and ask the state if I can talk to you. I just think it's, it creates you know, confusion and think it's obviously a bad outcome as far as I'm, we're concerned. Yeah, and, and Dan, you bring up a, an interesting question that, frankly, I, I think is a little bit ambiguous from all of this, is that the judge did specifically strike down 4433B, right. which talks about, A, initiating contact, but then also about the interview and the prosecutor's duty to inform the victim of their right to refuse the interview. But right. then they also, in, the judge in, that, in the same order, in footnote one, specifically leaves in place Arizona Rules of Criminal Procedure 39B12, which is the rule that, that kind of puts that into effect that says that a defense attorney is prohibited from interviewing a victim until they've made that request through the prosecutor's office. And so I, I guess I was a little bit unclear because the court seemingly is striking down a statute but then explicitly leaving in place a rule that seems to do the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I'm confused by that too, Randy. I don't know if you have any legal thought. The only thing I'll say is the whole decision is, um, it raises so many more questions than than answers. And, and again, this is, I, I think I understand what the judge was trying to do here. And I think I understand in general that our model rules of professional responsibility uh, require, you know, disclosure and not presenting a, uh, you know, not misrepresenting any details to a victim when efforts are made to interview them. But I just think that the way the judge uh, reached the conclusions that he did, it, it causes more confusion than, than clarifying, clarifies things. One of those issues that requires, I think, further clarification up at the Ninth Circuit and, and frankly, if need be beyond, is that very question. What the, by, by not changing anything with the rule, uh, Rule 39, what's the real outcome here? And frankly, I think the judge also said because there's more than sufficient uh, notice to victims at the first hearing. Uh, when victims have notification of their rights read to them in open court, somehow that's supposed to be sufficient notification of their rights to refuse an interview. I got to say, I respectfully disagree. Victims who never asked to be pushed into the criminal justice system oftentimes are dealing with traumatic episodes and trauma that, that require people to explain in depth what rights they have and, and do it repeatedly uh, because oftentimes what's called a trauma-informed communication to a crime victim is simply not addressed by a judge saying something only in open court. That doesn't accomplish what I think is what voters required 
the judiciary and the legislature when they passed the Victim Bill of Rights in, 2000, in 1991. Uh, so this decision I, it causes a lot of confusion. And I would just say, you know, I mean, even if the prosecutor's office is informing them, and it's also an open court, Randy's right, people are traumatized, and they need to oftentimes have it explained. And so my, my question is, what's an interview? Can a defense attorney ask, quote, non-interview questions when they meet up with the victim? I mean, I don't really know what that, you know, I just think it causes serious confusion, impacts more trauma on victims. Yeah. So, and actually... Randy, your your comment. This is the first I'm hearing that I didn't realize that the attorney general's office had announced they were going to appeal it. I kind of assumed that was the direction they were heading, but I I hadn't heard that yet. So they yeah, there's a notice of appeal, and um, our organization as well as a host of others, uh, National Crime Victim Law Institute, Arizona Voice for Victims, Legal Services for Crime Victims, and others are going to likely submit amicus briefs in support of overruling that decision. What's the timeline on something like that? I assume it's obviously not going to be something that happens in the near future. How long does something like that take? I guess I can answer the question in a couple of ways. First is, I typically would expect a briefing schedule within the next 30 days or so. But at the same time, I'm hopeful and, and I'd like to see the Attorney General's office request a stay of the judge's decision pending outcome at the Ninth Circuit. I don't know what the status is of that if a stay request will be made. I think it would be important and helpful to make it so that this law, so that this particular outcome is at least reviewed by a, a, an appellate court before it takes its effect. But typically, I'd expect to see a Ninth Circuit briefing schedule within you know a month or so. Well, I know that there's a lot of attorneys across Arizona and, and obviously a lot of Almost everybody in the criminal justice community is is watching that case closely. I mean, that would it would fundamentally change, you know, how victim advocates deal with victims, how defense attorneys deal with victims, obviously what prosecutors are doing with victims, how they they communicate. Kind of like you were saying, well, and about both of you were saying, right now, I mean, the letter often gets sent out from the prosecuting prosecuting agency, but with the understanding that if there is a request for an interview later on, a more substantive conversation can occur about that, but it's possible that the defense attorneys or their team are going to be reaching out and there might be need to be more of a substantive trauma-focused conversation happening earlier in the process. So, right, because, I mean, defense attorneys are going on a, oftentimes some mitigation, you know, fishing expedition, and, you know, I just think fundamentally a victim, it should go through the state, but that's just Dan Levy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Jake, I would add, you know, there, there's a legal argument. There's something called the Younger Doctrine, and it talks about abstention when issues almost exclusively affecting Arizona law comes up. That's an issue that I think we need to explore a little bit further. Why a federal court decided to intervene in a case that involves almost exclusively victim constitutional protections under state-based constitutional law, as well as the legislative decision implementing the state-based constitutional rights. I don't believe that under the circumstances, the federal First Amendment evaluation and analysis necessarily elevated to the level that the court should intervene and instead should have abstained and, if anything, let 
the state court addressed the question about interference with First Amendment rights, uh, but that that's some legal issues that we'll probably address at the Ninth Circuit on amicus. I would also add that Dan was touching on some points about what I think is supported by social science research, and that's that uh, participation in the criminal justice system, just in general, and specifically with certain actors, such as what I think are defense counsel and defense investigators, can potentially cause victims to experience secondary trauma. And under the circumstances, potential for post-traumatic stress or other mental distress and other types of trauma cannot be overlooked under these circumstances. And I expect if there isn't a state that would be implemented here, I would expect that everybody on our waiting list and everybody that potentially has cases coming up, whether it's at the, the town of Gilbert, whether it's County of Maricopa, Pinnell, AG, any potential victims should be notified almost immediately that they have the right to refuse interviews and to remember that if they're ever contacted by counsel, because that is their right. It's their constitutional right. And I don't believe that the district court has somehow limited or overruled that right of a victim to refuse interviews. And frankly, the more they know they have that right, the better. Yeah, and, and I mean, definitely the, the, the district court did multiple times stress the victim still had that right to, to refuse the interview. It, it did interest me. I mean, obviously, I'm no First Amendment expert, and this podcast is criminal law-focused and not First Amendment-focused for a reason. The First Amendment issues, you know, obviously, most of the, the cases that they cited to, cases like, you know, Reed, uh, which I believe is a signed case, that came out of Arizona, but the U.S. Supreme Court cases like U.S. v. Playboy, cases like the, I think it's State v. Brown out of California that, that deals with video games and violent video games and children, all of those seem very different in scope in that they're focused towards people speaking to the public at large, whereas the statute at issue here, the defense attorneys and the defense team was still permitted under the First Amendment analysis to speak to the public if they would like to. Maybe there was there are other ethical rules that might touch on that, but but there wasn't a statute that prohibited that that speaking. All it said is don't go specifically to the victim to make contact. And it seemed like the compelling state interest analysis was kind of glossed over a little bit from from my opinion. And that it'll be interesting to see what the Ninth Circuit thinks and and how they consider that analysis. Well, Jake, I just want to say, you know, my work, I approach it as a survivor. My brother was murdered in a random act of violence 25 years ago. And I just think, you know, fundamentally, I mean, I don't, as far as I know, and I've worked in prosecutors' offices, the prosecutor doesn't have unfettered access to the defendant. A victim's rights attorney can't just contact the defendant. And so I just think fundamentally, you know, Arizona has had it right for a long time. And uh, Steve Twist, the author of the legislation, you know, I won't quote him exactly, but I, I heard antidotal stories from before 1990 and even after where victims were, you know, just harassed and intimidated to the point where sometimes they would say, you know what, I don't want to go forward with this deposition or with these charges because of the way I'm being treated. So, and I think some of that will be going back and looking at the legislative history and the testimony when the legislation passed. 
Yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how that goes. I know then the court touched on that a little bit, the district court. Like I like I said, I don't know that they went into it and they didn't seem as intrigued by it or as uh, swayed by it as I would have been, um, but, but kind of touched on that. And also, you know, Randy, the court also touched on that uh, secondary trauma issue. And, and interestingly, maybe one of the points I found most interesting from the court's ruling and their their findings of fact and law saying that contact with the prosecutor's office could also lead to secondary trauma, which you would all agree is possible, but to suggest that it's just as likely from the prosecutor's office as from the defense attorney and, and the defense team, I, I think, seemed a little bit, I don't want to say naive, but I'll say uninformed, but but I wasn't hired for the, the submitting of, of evidence, and so may, maybe that just didn't get developed as much. I think at the end of the day, the types of trauma that the secondary trauma that victims uh, will unfortunately face is is an area that I think needs to be further developed. Uh, I saw that same thing in the findings of fact and conclusions of law, but I also saw the judge maybe need some help and some guidance from further scholarly research that shows the the very real harm that secondary trauma because of interaction with the defendant's agents could inflict on a crime victim. I think there needs to be potential development of a more of a record that shows that type of trauma. And, and I don't even think, think it necessarily needs to be down below because realistically there's what I believe would be enough peer-reviewed literature that the Ninth Circuit could take some judicial notice of the types of trauma that could uh, be experienced if this opinion and outcome were to continue. And Jake, I was just going to mention sort of on a related issue, although not directly, but we've been battling and won a victory two years ago in the legislature. Last year, we still won, but it got modified on turning over. And this is a little bit different, but it has to do with turning over unredacted video to the defendant or the defense team or their defense investigators with all the body cam video and how long it takes to redact. That was a battle we fought because uh, Pima County had a memo of understanding within their defense community and the courts and the prosecutors that they would just turn information over to the defense team without informing the victim unredacted. And so it's a separate issue, but it's still privacy issues, protecting victims' dignity, and a s interesting issue with the advent of body cam video and all the dynamics that that caused, which I'm sure you deal with sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, body cam has been quite a change, obviously, and, and lots yeah. of people along yeah. And victims' rights have been a key one there. Well, um, it'll be interesting to see kind of where we go from here with that. I mean, obviously, the appeal has to work its way through the courts. Do you guys see any legislative changes coming because of this decision or or any of these other victims' rights issues that are happening? Or, or do, do you think that they're kind of standing pat at the legislature when it comes to victims' rights for the next couple of terms? I mean, there's always things that we can improve on. I know you know, that's on our radar is to give judges uh, the ability to make clear in statute that they can order up to 50% of an inmate's uh, wage and trust earnings to be taken for restitution. The statute now says basically the director can take 20 to 50%, uh, and normally it's 20%. 
by policy at the Department of Corrections, but we've had Randy successfully have argued, you know, somewhat this person is going for a long time. They should have 50% taken and the courts order that. Some courts and corrections will follow that. Other courts have said, we can't get involved with that issue that, you know, an executive branch or a separate issue that needs to be decided somewhere else. So we want to make it clear that the courts can order up to 50%. Somebody's going to prison for life for whatever, 40 years. Why not increase it to the max? I think what Dan's referring to is a collection right. issue under ARS 31-230, subsection C. I see that as a pure technical change that might come up at the legislature next year. There might be some other technical changes, but I don't see anything majorly substantive jumping out as a result of this ruling. Unfortunately, I don't think there's anything the legislature could do to, well, I don't know. I, I Maybe, let me say it a different way. It's going to take some creative thinking and analysis to see if there's any changes to the 4433B statute that maybe there would be some some guidance the legislature could give. I think the first step, though, is to go to the Ninth Circuit and see what the, what they need to do. Thank Can you, I Paul. just add a couple of really minor points? I don't see, and, and Jacob, is it okay if I just kind of do a quick follow-up? Yeah, of course. I don't see the decision is restricting a victim from refusing an interview. And I'm concerned that the outcome of decision will lead to just that point where a victim doesn't know that they can re refuse an interview request. I hope it doesn't lead to that. But in the meantime, I would, whoever, whichever prosecuting agencies hear this podcast, I would strongly hope that every prosecutor who has case that involves victims tells victims that they have the absolute right to refuse an interview and that under this new decision, uh, you may be contacted by defense counsel or defense investigator. You have the right to say, no, I don't want to talk to you. I'm just concerned that the outcome of this decision, the unintended consequence of the decision is that victims uh, won't know that they have that right still. There's a case from the Ninth Circuit way back in 2006, Kenna versus United States, that I'm concerned this could set us back for years to where that Ninth Circuit opinion came out. And they said the criminal justice system has long functioned on the assumption that crime victims should behave like good Victorian children, seen but not heard. And I just don't want to see that situation come up under these circumstances where we take a step in the wrong direction as a result. Great. Well, thank you both for taking time today, and I appreciate you you coming on. Maybe we'll we'll have a follow-up episode as this case kind of winds its way through and as we get closer to some kind of a ruling from the Ninth Circuit and and see how this, you know, if, if and when, I assume, like you said, that there will be a petition for a stay as we kind of get some of those rulings and see kind of where this is headed. Thanks for joining us today on Guilty as Charged. Please subscribe to our podcast to get more great discussion about law and crimes specific to Arizona and also get access to Arizona Supreme Court audio. You can find Jake on Twitter at Jacob Brown AZ. 